Welcome to the Mad Singers Management Podcast from madsingers.com, where entrepreneurs and business managers learn and share. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matt. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hi there. Right. So Matt is a software guy. And the reason why I've asked Matt to come on the show today is because I know so many entrepreneurs who are either trying to build their own software for in-house needs or trying to build SaaS solutions or the likes for external sales. Now, Matt have a lot of experience with software in general, and I'm really excited for him to share a lot of his experience with the audience today so that you guys can learn and make less mistakes in the future. So Matt, not everyone in the world knows who you are yet. Do you mind doing an introduction of yourself and your background so people get to know a little bit more about you? Very happy to. Um, thanks for having me here. Um, so my background, I spent uh, a lot of years building software and working software companies. So as a developer, as a team leader, um, product management, and lastly, a CTO for a few businesses. So I've, I've had... Uh, more years than I care to think about in the software building industry, mostly in the world of startups and SMEs, um, including a couple of my own. Excellent. And what, what's, been the, what's been the most, let's call it scarier, what, what's, what's been the, the most um, not so nice experience you ever had from building softwares? Well, I'd say that the, from my own perspective, um, it's the waste of effort. Uh, I mean, I put, a num- I put a number of years of my life into companies that I thought were going to go somewhere and ultimately didn't. Um, and that's a, that's a very depressing feeling because, I mean, as a software developer, very often what you really want to do is do a great job. You want to make great software that you're proud of. Uh, if you build a product that fails, that's the, there aren't me- in the business world, there are not many um, things that feel that bad because it's kind of your baby. Um, yeah. As somebody working with software companies, it's kind of wasted ambition. I see people who have an amazing idea. They really want to make the world a better place and, and it doesn't happen. And that's crushing for them and also uh, a waste to the world of something that could be helpful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think like I've been there. So I can just as well say that from the, the get-go. I've definitely been there. I know plenty of people who have, right? And I think it's always, in the beginning, I think people always have this idea that it's much faster and much easier than it really is to build a piece of software. Mm-hmm. And particularly if they're not software people. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people, they're kind of like, oh yeah, can you build me this thing? And it'll be five grand and we are up running and that kind of thing. And, and unfortunately, that's really, uh, that's not yet how software works. Let's say it that way, right? It, it can work that way for some people. Um, I mean, the, the, the reasons why software fail usually is you're building the wrong product. And what does that really mean? It means you're building a product, which when other people hear about it, they don't go, oh, I need that. I must have that. They kind of go, not for me or doesn't seem to be solving a problem that I have. Um, so sometimes you can just take five grand and solve a problem. I mean, you can build something with an Excel spreadsheet if it, if it solves the problem. But you're right. Yeah. In most cases, it's, it's a much harder thing to do to solve a meaningful problem for people. And what's any, any sort of particular strategy, like when you work with companies nowadays, like any, any sort of particular approach you have to it that just really works well for you? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have a system that I've built largely because of the failures, in a sense. So starting from analysing my own failures uh, and then yeah. looking at the failures of people I've worked around. So I have a system that essentially based around, one, really understanding what it is you're trying to do. A lot of people don't really sweat the, the mission very hard. And the difficulty with that is if you, if you don't really know where you want to be, lots and lots of paths look like they go there. And that makes it very hard to say no to things. So a lot of people get distracted because something looks kind of close to where they want to be, but actually takes them away from it. Yeah. Um, a real focus on understanding the customer. I see far too often people jumping into building product development with a relatively limited understanding of the customer, their problem, and, and often the drivers in the customer's life. So you think your problem is very important, but actually when you look at a customer in their life, is it really that important? Are they going to stop everything to get your product or is it kind of a, well, maybe on a, on a rainy day type of thing. So a a real focus on value proposition, understanding you're solving an important problem for a group of people who will want to pay you to have that problem solved and then hiring. Um, the challenge very often for people who don't have 20, 30 years in software development is it's very hard for them to evaluate the people that they're going to help get to help them to build this company. Uh, and I do see a lot of non-technical people making risky choices in terms of early technical hires, um, hiring kind of the best programmer you've met type of thing as your CTO, which from the outside kind of looks like it might not be a bad decision but it's pretty risky as to whether you're getting the right person for you, for your business and the work that needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can definitely attest to that. I've seen a lot of people in that situation because, you know, mostly it's a question of, Oh, you know, I have this idea. Do you know how to do it? Yeah, I do. Okay. Let's, let's go kind of thing. Right. So they're, they're not, I mean, they're not taking big strategic approach as you're saying, right. They're just, yeah, it, it looks they're, easier they're than it, it is. Which, which is fine. One of, the, one of the challenges, and I think a lot of people don't see this about software, is that firstly, they, they have this idea that building software is like building a house. It's like you have a plan and you follow the plan. Yeah. Software's not really like that. The, the plan is always wrong. And, and if you don't expect that and anticipate that, then times are going to be hard for you. Yeah, so what, you know, when you're seeing people start off and so on and, and they tend to jump in it too fast, any, any particular process or any particular recommendation you have for people to kind of step back or like any, any particular framework or such that, that you recommend people to use or any, any sort of, let's call it minimum viable information really, right? Like, like what is the information you, you have to get before you sort of kick off the process of start building something? Okay, so there's, there's some really good free resources that anybody doing this can add to their toolkit. Uh, the first is to look into Professor John Mullins' seven domains model, uh, which sounds pretty complicated, but it's just a way of evaluating a business idea. Mullins is a business school professor at the London Business School and also an investor. So he came up with this model for evaluating startup companies being presented to him. It's a great model that you can apply to yourself to understand, are we answering the kind of questions that investors will will ultimately ask us, which is a good way of saying, are we prepared to be in business? There's a tool by a guy called David Bland called Assumption Mapping, which is a really awesome tool for, I mean, anybody building software should go to David's site and download the PDF toolkit for Assumption Mapping, which is entirely free. and it basically asks you a number of questions around how desirable your product is, how feasible it is, how viable it is. 
and then you map those assumptions based on how much evidence you have. So is it kind of my gut tells me or is it we have validated case studies and risk? So if we were wrong about this, ho-hum, we come up with a different answer versus if we're wrong about this, we're dead tomorrow. And the idea then is that those assumptions can then be categorized and you can start to see, well, actually, we're building on top of an assumption that we don't have a lot of evidence for. Now, my experience is, in many cases, when people start with an assumption today, by tomorrow, it's kind of a woolly fact. And then a week later, it's baked in. Simply reminding ourselves, this is an assumption. Why do we think this can be really powerful, particularly yeah. when we're about to spend a lot of money building software? So uh, have we moved this critical assumption from gut feeling to evidence-based enough to start spending 5, 10, 20K a month building software? The third tool, which I, I recommend people look into again free, is a tool called Impact Mapping. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the author's name because he's got one of those names that he's, he's quite difficult to, uh, to infer the pronunciation from. Um, but yep. if you go look for impactmapping.org or look for the book on Amazon, I think you'll find it very easily. Um, impact Mapping is a way of translating ideas and money into software that's feedback-based. I have a view of software that it's, it's very often a communication problem. Because if you think about it, you start with an idea in your head then you have to communicate that to somebody else who maybe communicates to somebody else who then tap, 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 create software that makes the machine do what it was you wanted to do. How yeah. that idea gets translated from the idea in your head to working piece of software is very much about how you communicate what the problem is and who can impact it and, and good or bad ways of solving that. And impact mapping is a process that really anybody can use to try and hone down this is where we should be working. We should put the bulk of our money on our effort here because we think it has the best chance of delivering for our business. The challenge quite often is there's a lack of connection between what the software we're building does and what makes the business work, which very often is about onboarding users, generating revenue, generating profit, whatever metrics of success you want to, you want to take. The challenge is how you understand what the 10 grand you spent with software developers last month translated into what the business is doing yeah. and impact mapping is a, a way of facilitating a connection between those two things in a, in a very clear visual powerful way nice okay i have not heard of any of those before but uh, that now, sounds like some excellent free resources now there are there are more there are there are tools that are perhaps more well understood so the value proposition design work by alex osterwalder and co i think is is very good um yeah. I've built some tools of my own largely because my experience with things like value proposition design is that people building software want to spend much more time talking about the value proposition end, i.e. the product, than the customer end, i.e. who's going to buy it. Um, yep. So I've actually created, I don't, I'm, if you want to put a link to them, they're free. I'm very happy to use them. Sure. Um, I have some tools which are designed around customer discovery, which is intended to bring a sales lens into the customer discovery process to say, can we understand why somebody will buy a solution to this problem? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, uh, I mean, I, I obviously do a lot of business coaching and, and I, I think it is a little bit harder with software sometimes because there's a lot more unknowns, but it is very similar process to, you know, how people start a, a, any kind of service business or whatever. Right. Because so often they just jump out in it and, and you know, they haven't made the strategy clear. And the, the problem with software is that if you first start developing, making changes quickly becomes expensive. Right. Yeah. I mean, software, Whereas, is, it, software, is, yeah. Well, software is this wonderful thing, right? It's like digital Lego. 
I mean, yeah. you can put it together and you can make it do anything. But that's also the challenge. It's also a bit like cement. I mean, everybody who's worked with cement knows that at the beginning, you pour it, it's lovely, it'll go into any shape you like. A couple of hours later, it's rock hard. And if you now you decide you want another shape, you're talking about a sledgehammer and a lot of, a lot of sort of heavy action to, to change that shape. And software's okay. like that. It has this wonderful thing, you can make it do anything. And at the beginning, it's very malleable. But the further you go, the harder it is to change. And, and very often it's our early assumptions about what the product should look like that, that will dominate. So if we make those assumptions loosely and, and the, there's this kind of move fast and break things mentality that comes from principally from sort of Silicon Valley, um, yeah. which is, which I guess is fine in some circumstances. Um, most of the time I would say to people move a bit slower and prove what you know, um, particularly if you're outside the Valley and the Valley funding environment. I mean, you yeah. see companies, I don't know quite how prevalent it is, but you see companies raise a couple of million bucks of seed funding in Silicon Valley, which really doesn't happen in London, for example, where, where most of the companies that I'm working with are based. Yeah. Um, so if you take this move fast approach, it means move at the time where you have the least information about your problem, the least knowledge of your assumptions and the least tested stuff and go build a lot of software. Now, if you get lucky, and it just happened that you you do know the customer that well and the assumptions you've made are good and everything kind of falls into place. Sure. I, I don't see many people who are that lucky though. And, and they would have been better off. There are some markets where being there early is everything. It's like if, if we're not there in three months, we've missed our opportunity. But most of the time, you can take a little bit of time to go, are we really sure about this? Have we talked to potential customers? Have we reflected the fact that when we're talking to those customers, are they actually telling us the truth or are they telling us what they, they think we want to hear? Yeah. Um, which is a big problem if you've had experience of sales. I mean, you, it's not necessarily the case that people are going to tell you exactly what they think. So you say, I'm going to do this. When that person goes, that's great. That's exactly what I want. Are they thinking that or are they just thinking, well, I don't want to upset you by telling you I think your idea is rubbish. So doing that work of really trying to hone in on what are key, what are the key assumptions that we've made and, and do we have good evidence that those are that those assumptions are likely to prove to be right before we spend 50 to 100,000 pounds building an MVP based on those assumptions yeah no totally and i i, I see like I, I see a lot of companies particular in, in situations, you know, where, you know, they'll go out and ask people like, Hey, you know, would you pay money for this thing? And, you know, it's probably better than nothing, but people saying they would pay money well, and I, people actually paying money is two I, very I don't know. Things. In some cases, I think it is worse than nothing because it can lead you to a sense of false confidence. Fair um, enough. Yep. You, you go to a bunch of people and say, would you pay for this? Now somebody approaches you and say, would you pay for this? What do you say to them? I mean, you don't, you potentially don't know this person very well, or you know them too well. So, oh, well, I don't want to upset you because we're friends. So yeah, of course I would. I maybe don't put too much thought into it. Like, yeah, I can kind of see it. So I'll say yes. Or somebody who you who literally doesn't know you is like, well, this person might get angry if I say I don't like their product. So of course I'm going to say yes. It's the easiest way of getting out of the conversation. And yeah. the, the danger with that then is that you, you get a false sense of confidence. Hey, we talked to a bunch of people and they all said, yes, we must be right. And there's a, there's a particular challenge for entrepreneurs that I've observed over the years. If you're the kind of person where you start hearing things you disagree with, so you start saying, I'm doing this, and people say, well, you're, that's a rubbish idea, that's not going to work. You really don't get in the room because most ideas at the beginning are 
pretty silly sounding to somebody. So by definition, you're the kind of person who thinks you know better than other people. When other people tell me I'm wrong, I'm right. And at the beginning, that serves you really well because more people are going to tell you you're wrong at the beginning. But then there comes this point for most entrepreneurs where they step out of what you might call their zone of competence and they're starting to make decisions where they're very likely to be wrong. But they've now acquired this sense of, I know best. When other people tell me I'm wrong, I'm really right. And if they don't have somebody in the business who can give them a sense of objectivity, some perspective and say, you know what, actually you're wrong. You need to listen to this. That can really lead them astray. And you see a lot of people um, where founders start after a track record of making what seem to be really great judgments, suddenly start making really poor judgments and run into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I, I love that analogy you have there. I think that's uh I mean, it happens all the time, right? And and it's yeah. in, in the beginning, again, you can power through a lot of things, even if you make wrong decisions or if you, right. it's yeah. not really wrong decisions, but if you like, let, let's call them less than ideal decisions, you can still often power through it, right? Exactly. But at some, at some point, your company grows so big that you can't keep doing that, right? So I, I love that analogy. That's great. Okay. And um yeah, so so if if people are looking to get started, right, and and they're looking to build, let's say, a larger tool. So you, you mentioned earlier, like let let's say the second tool as an example. What mm-hmm. what is the best approach if if they are, for example, a, a non tech person? Like, what do you recommend the sort of right approach being? Should they go straight out hire someone, or like what's what's the best way to go around it? That's a really good question. So if we're assuming sort of a non-technical person who, who wants to build something significant, um, I mean, if we're talking pure startup, then my advice generally is go find a co-founder. I've watched this happen a lot. doesn't matter how determined you are, how smart you are, how brilliant you are. Every startup at some point becomes so hard that having somebody else kind of in the foxhole with you is, is almost essential. So if you are a non-technical founder, trying to find a technical co-founder is is probably one of your best routes to to success if you can find somebody who complements you so if you are a, an ideas person a creative you probably want somebody who's more of a completer finisher type of person as a as a co-founder to complement that so the so yep. the ideal is kind of you go out and you find a technology person who might be the person who builds the first version of your product um obviously if we're talking about larger organizations with established teams things like that it it tends to be a bit different um the next thing is kind of to try and ask what sort of shift am i trying to make am i trying to re completely redefine how a market or an industry works am i creating a new business model am i shifting customer experience somehow so so what is the real driver of the change i'm making because i see a lot of people who are doing not quite me too businesses not quite a copycat but they're not thinking hard enough about solving a difficult problem. Um, they want to get going as quickly as possible. So they kind of take the first manageable slice of the problem they come across. And they don't necessarily really think, okay, where is the real core of this problem? So sweating, what problem are we really trying to solve, which really requires going very deeply into, into how to understand the lives of the people involved. I'll give you an example of a client I worked with, um, I think it was last year. Uh, they were in the film industry and... Yep we really went down to the, the level of, right, you're a film producer. What's your day look like? You wake up at kind of six in the morning, 
Um, you're scanning your, your emails for problems that have happened overnight and, and kind of go through the entire day to see what's happening and, and mapping this process out. And, and what we discovered in this case was some assumptions that we made about what was important to these people turned out to be wrong because when you actually looked at how their lives worked, there were other things that really dominated. And I see this a lot that, that people come at this through the lens of the problem they're trying to solve. And so because it's very important to them, they assume it's very important to customers. Even, and, and the issue is the customer may have the problem, but if it's kind of problem number 10 for somebody who on a good day gets to problem number five, when you talk to them and say, would well, you have this problem? They'll go, yes. Would you like to fix it? Yeah, sure. Would you like to fix it rather than problems one, two, three, four, or five? Well, no, because they're the things that are on fire for me. So actually really trying to understand the psychology and the behavior and the context of potential buyers and go, when we come to them with this product, what will they do with it? And these are all things that you can do before you start actually spending a lot of money building software. The, the challenge I very often find is people are excited to get started. They've got this idea about a product. They're very excited. They, they have this mantra of move fast. And the first, the, almost the first thing they want to do is just get into, let's start building this thing. And, and most of the time, that's probably not going to serve you very well. Yeah, no, that uh, totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. And yeah, so that's very much sort of small business and so on. What, what about if, if you are looking at slightly bigger businesses and, you know, they're, they're looking to, like a, a lot of the clients I work with, you know, they're, they're looking to build higher level software, they're looking to automate things, they're looking to basically make their business more efficient. I, I guess the approach there will be slightly different. I think the fundamentals of the approach are very much the same because ultimately it's about solving a meaningful problem that people will, in, in the case of a larger company, it might be by proxy, but people will want to, to pay for. I think it matters much more. So in large companies, is this... Um, kind of a phase two, we've, we've sort of reached a plateau of growth of the product we've got, or are we trying to continue acceleration of a product that we have? That will lead to kind of different kinds of decisions. I mean, the um, Jobs to be Done framework um, by Tony Ulwick is, is um, probably biased more towards innovation in larger companies and uh, bringing in techniques like sort of rice scoring and things like that as ways of understanding, do we do this feature or do we that, do that feature? So yeah. you've got, you, I guess you've got the kind of, we're innovating around an existing product line. What do we do to make our product more persuasive, more attractive, increase our margins? Yeah. Uh, and then you've got the innovation as we've kind of plateaued and we need act two. Act two kind of often looks like a startup because you may be, you may kind of go, well, we're going to operate in the same market, but we're going to solve very different problems for these people. Or you might say, we're going to translate the problem we solve from one market to, to another. So I think, deciding what you need to do as a first point and what it should do for you. So probably in larger businesses, it's much more important to show how ROI is being achieved. So a topic like a, a tool like impact mapping again, which very directly ties the stuff that you do to the business metrics might be a very good way of justifying, well, actually we want to spend this money to do this because we think it will do this for our business. And, and if you work impact mapping as a system, then over time you get to go, well, we thought we were doing this because we, we, we were doing this because we hypothesized that uh, we would onboard 20% more users per month doing this. Well, actually we've done, we, we've done the first version and we got 5%. 
is it worth yep. fixing that because we think it'll give us the rest or maybe we made a mistake and assumption we should look at doing something else um yep. so i think biasing yourself towards tools which are going to help clarify how investment is turning into output uh, again so david bland the guy who did assumption mapping has a, a recent book come out called testing business ideas which for somebody in that situation i'd say would be an ideal read because it, it talks about what kind of test evidence you need for justifying certain assumptions how you can gather that evidence so again taking a very hypothesis-based approach we think if we do this it generates a product which gives us this kind of revenue why do we think that um, i have relatively less experience in in enterprise um, but I, I i feel like there's a lot of wishful thinking about they're going to want this using impact mapping is a great way of connecting together what you're going to spend money doing and return on investment um, for people in that situation another resource so i mentioned assumption mapping by david bland david has a, a book out recently called testing business ideas um, which is kind of a catalog of experiments that you can do. What's nice is that he kind of says, well, okay, what strength of evidence do you need to make a particular kind of decision? Here are tests that you can run and the budget you need and how to run them to kind of go, can we gather, do we have the evidence to justify those decisions? So to so somebody working in sort of an innovation team or something in a large organization, using the testing business ideas model um, to kind of verify, are we working off a safe assumption? So when we do this, are people actually going to want to buy it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, uh, so a lot of the examples I've seen very specifically is where companies go in and say, you know, we have all these manual things. We have people sitting manually doing tasks. You know, if, if we're going to go and automate that, we'll save X, Y, Z. Uh, and they're, 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 they're very quick at making some big assumptions in terms of savings and in terms of what it will take and so on, right? And, and I definitely see those assumptions very, very frequently being incorrect in, in the wrong way, right? So, so people are making this assumption that pretty much you can build a piece of software to do what people do and, you know, five minutes later you can fire half your workforce type of thing. I um, think that's the, the challenge when, when these projects are done from a desire to cost cut. Um, I, I think almost by definition you've started going wrong. Um, if you come at it from an effectiveness perspective, how do we make our workforce more effective? That's different. Once you start taking an approach of, well, we're just doing this to, to, to get rid of people. Um, well, it's things like, okay, so do people actually tell you what they really do? I mean, I'm, I've been involved in um, digitalization processes in the past. And I can, uh, it was a while ago, but I, I can think of one in particular that was quite a large institutional change. And what we discovered was people would tell you kind of what the process in the manual was, but they didn't actually tell you what they did. So when you start digitalizing the process, you find it doesn't fit 80% of the cases. Oh, it's like, well, when this happens, I do this. It's like, well, you didn't tell us that. It was like, well, that's not really how it's supposed to be done. It's just how you have to get it to work here. Yeah. And so the challenge for when you're doing automation is what are you automating? Yeah. And there's also a problem about slack and flexibility people inherently have a certain amount of in, in a healthy organization there's a certain amount of slack to yeah. make exceptions work reasonably when you yeah. start to automate something all of that kind of gets gets squeezed out of the process and that's where you find the wrong things rubbing together very often so yeah. I, I think it's very difficult to come from uh we want to save money approach to automation there are low-hanging fruit that you can automate 
I, I prefer to see it as a, how do you make people more effective? So how do you use automation, artificial intelligence, these kind of tools enable people to do better at what they do? And I think that's a much more productive way of coming at things. Yeah. And then actually, so, so the way I've seen a lot of people come at it is also slightly different. Often I see, oh, you know, there's all these many manual processes and it's very, it's very frequent that, you know, when people have to sit and manually copy paste information from one mm-hmm. place to another, uh, you know, 700 times every day, you know, the likelihood they make a mistake is much higher and so on. So it, it's often from that kind of scenario that it's not necessarily, yeah, let's cut people, but it's, it's more well, sort of a, yeah. The, the determining question I would say is who is driving change? If, as an organization, you say to people, how can you use automation to, to make what you do better, then you have some agency in the process and you are driving that to effect change that means something to you. If it's top down, how do we change the process to be more efficient for us? That's, I think, where things start to go wrong. Because That's you have to be careful. People, yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and humans are humans, right? So you see the machine coming for, for you. Do you stick a, a, a stake in the spokes of the machine? Do you tell people what you really do or, or what the book says you should do? So I think it's very much if you are trying to enable people, if you're making people an agent of change and giving them the tools to say, how does automation help you? I think you get a much better output than if you kind of take a top-down system approach of this is a machine and we can just turn this bit into a better machine. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Uh, and it's very similar. I mean, I, I used to work with IBM where we would, you know, go into companies and figure out what they were doing and basically outsource that labor to, yeah. to one of the centers with IBM, right? And that was exactly the same thing. Like you had the process book and then... <laughs> Reality was often a very, very, very different thing. Absolutely, so, yeah. Totally relate to that. Yeah. Okay, that's that's excellent. And I, I think from a from a high level perspective, I mean, it's 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 some of these things that you know, I I don't think people should generally be discouraged to necessarily go and and look at developing tools and so on, right? But I know lots of people who are who are too afraid to do it because it's too technical or they're not technical mm-hmm. themselves and so on. Like any, any sort of particular, if people are sitting being very hesitant, any particular advice for, for business owners in that situation? So, I mean, there are, there are some people who probably just shouldn't. I mean, if you yeah. are not good with risk, if you're not good with stress, uh, if you, uh, if your family situation is is a bit uncertain or not being out of work unpaid for six months could be problematic, then then that really probably says if you feel this is risky, there may be a good reason why it feels risky and not everybody should just jump into it. That said, if if the risk level is appropriate and you have a good idea, there's never been a better time to pursue it. Um, but the, the fundamentals remain the fundamentals. So if you are not capable of building the software yourself, you're going to have to get somebody else to do it for you. How do you know that the people doing that are the right people? And I run into lots of people who've, who've hired people who you look at, sort of, sort of average layman would look at and go, well, not a bad choice as developer or CTO or what have you for this business. But yep. where somebody who'd been in the profession for a long time would go, well, maybe that wasn't such a good choice. So getting a group of people around you. So, I mean, the, the first thing I would say is you need somebody who can tell you wake up, smell the coffee, something's not right. 
You need somebody who, when they say that to you, you won't go, I know better. And you will go, okay, I need to kind of step back and test what I know about my situation. If you don't have that, there's a good chance you're going to take a long walk off a short pier at some point. Um, Secondly, if you're building technology, you need a trusted technology person at the very least as a kind of advisor, somebody who can vet people for you, help you make decisions or, or just give you the right questions you should be asking yourself. If that's not somebody actually part of your business, it should be somebody who is friend with your business. Yep. So look through your network for people who've been there and done it and who are willing to kind of give you an hour every now and again to kind of vet what you're doing. And, and definitely that first technical hire, you have to sweat that as hard as you can. Um, there's a, a good model for decision-making um, uh, that I, I get from Jeff Bezos, which is really about two types of decisions. There's decisions that need to be made in a hurry. And there's decisions that if we're wrong, um, have really bad consequences. Um, if we need to go in a hurry, then we have to understand what does bad look like and what would we do instead? For some decisions, we really need to, to take the time and sweat them properly. That first technical hire should not be a type one decision. Yep. You should actually really have the best shot you can at getting the right person. Because if you hire the wrong person first, it's very unlikely that future technical hires are going to take you in the right direction. Yeah. Um, if you've hired somebody who is does not have a good values alignment, I mean, values is something that I, I spend a lot of time on with clients. Um, yeah. And for me, values really are about day-to-day behavior. They're not kind of nice, fuzzy words that we, we aspire to. It's, it's how we want to be. Um, hiring somebody who's a bad values fit for you. I mean, I had a case a while ago, um, some very energetic, talkative founders who hired a CTO who was a, um, essentially a recluse. Now, their technical merits in this case don't really matter so much because if we think about software as a communication problem, that I have to understand what problem I'm building, an inability to communicate is is pretty much a no-go for non-technical founders. Um, So really sweating that first hire and making sure you've got somebody good in the business, I think is probably, if you've got that and, and the risk you're taking is appropriate to your situation, then I'd say, great. Go for it. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, I really like that advice. I think that's uh, it's deep enough, and it it, it kind of gives people a, a good vision of you know what it will take. So so I really. I mean, like don't that. get me wrong. It is a hard problem. I'm very often approached by people who who um, are looking for a tech co-founder, CTO, technical person, senior technical person, of some kind, and and good ones that you like and you want to recommend to people are not that easy to find. So if you yep. and and if you come from a marketing background or a sales background or a design background, you may not be hanging out with a lot of developers to kind of go, well, I've got a network full of these people. Yep. Um, it really can pay. I mean, I've seen a couple of people operate this strategy, which is they start going to developer meetups. Yeah. And, and they don't try and do it in this stealth thing of, hey, I'm really a developer. They kind of go, look, I want to know your world. And in my experience, most developers, if you take an interest, they're kind of like, great. Right? Yeah. There's not a snobbery there. So if you kind of say, well, look, I need to understand a bit about your world. I'm going to go step into it and, and be an amateur for a bit and learn a little bit. That kind of approach can serve you very well. Now, obviously, right now, that's, that's more difficult because meetups are, are not happening in quite the same way. But for example, um, finding some groups who are having online discussions and just reading it and getting a sense, go on Hacker News, get a sense of what techie people are interested in. 
Um, There are ways of buying. I mean, it's a hard problem to solve, but there are ways of of improving your odds. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I mean, uh, when I were corporate, one of my big strengths was the ability to talk between tech and nerdy reporting people Mm -hmm. and then talking with the management team, right? Yeah. Because like a big issue, like particularly as you talked about, like a sales team and a dev team communicate so fundamentally different that, you know, even if they talk the same language, it often doesn't feel like it. Right. I mean, this this relates to a. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, this relates to a big problem that I see about appropriateness of decision making. So the model that I use is business people should decide what is important. Technology people should decide what is difficult. And when you break that rule, bad things happen. So when you have technology people, as I've had in the past, when I'm talking to people, it's like, well, my developers said we don't need this feature. I go, well, that's a problem because now you have people who are not at the sharp end of the business telling you what the business needs. An equivalent uh, and an equally destructive problem is, for example, the CEO who says, well, we did something like this at my last company. It was easy. So just do this, right? Yeah. You don't, unless you are a, a mad chops developer, you don't get the right to say what's easy or not. You're good technical people you've hired. That's what they're there for, right? Yeah. So making sure that you have business people deciding on what the, the important thing for the business is, and technology people deciding what is easy or difficult, that allows you to triangulate around problems that are sufficiently difficult that they are interesting and hard to copy, but sufficiently important that they really give the business some leverage. And if you get that decision-making right, that's very important. But it it does require that the two parties are able to actually have a conversation, which, as I'm sure you've experienced, often that conversation is not really happening. It's it's almost like... um, diplomatic things with with two companies that have no diplomatic relations so they have a meeting in one room with the with the negotiator who then takes what they've thought go to another room and start talking to the other party and you just can't have that that might work in diplomatic negotiations but if you're trying to build a successful software product that's not an approach that can work no no and and often often it's not even that people are not in the same room but it's just because you know metaphorically they i mean Physically, they may be in the same room, but metaphorically, they're very often having very different conversations. Yeah. Um, and, and that leads to all kinds of problems for, for founders around things like, well, they keep saying it's nearly done, but it's never actually done. Yeah. Or why doesn't it, I, I thought we were building a product that does this, it doesn't seem to do what I want it to do. And it's not for lack of talking. Um, most often, it's for lack of listening on, on both sides and an ability to hear what is being said. And also... There, there can be a, a kind of a, a view of technical people as well they're just the coders they're there to do what i tell them well yeah. that devalues good when that sort of thing happens that devalues good technical people who can kind of say well actually now i understand what you're trying to do there's a better way of doing this it's cheaper it's faster it's more effective what have you so so facilitating a, a an open conversation and this this is where a tool like impact mapping i've discussed before can be very powerful because it creates the environment for business people and technology people to come together and have a conversation where both of their needs are met. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. That's been uh, that's been super interesting, Matt. That's been a really good conversation. If, if the audience is eager to get hold of you or the likes, what, what's the best ways of finding you? Uh, so I have a website, theartofnavigation.co.uk, which kind of lays out at a higher level kind of what I, the sort of work I do, um, 
Uh, my LinkedIn profile, again, gives, gives information about the kind of things that I do, the kind of problems that I tackle. I'm generally very happy to have a conversation with anyone about the kind of problems they've got. I mean, my, my, my big thing really is, is software has this amazing, when done right, software has this amazing power to make the world a better place. And I really love when people are doing something meaningful with software and, and actually creating something that's going to have some impact. And I'm very happy just to hear those kind of stories. Excellent. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you very much, Matt. I will include all these links in the show notes. And uh, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. Matt, thanks very much for having me. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening to the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Please leave a review. It means the world to us. You can also learn more about management at madsingers.com.